All right, so I want you to put on your thinking cap as we begin. And I want you to remember back when you were a kid growing up. Did your parents ever tell you, act your age? I can recall being told this many times growing up. You probably wouldn't think this, but I was actually like the class clown growing up, or I would say the goofball kind of thing. And, um, you know, my brother, my little brother, he, he really got, he really knew what to do. And so, you know, we'd be in the back. We had a Dodge Caravan, so we'd be in the back there, and I would start messing with them. And, things, and every time I would start, he'd say, Mom! You know, so Mom would automatically turn back. And so it, he got that down. So whenever I would start messing, he would just call it to Mom, and then I would get in trouble kind of thing. And we would hear, Jake, act your age. Come on, grow up. You know, so that's pretty bad. Now, even worse... Have you ever been told this by your parents or someone else while an adult? <laughs> you know, come on, grow up, <laughs> act your age. Now, if your answer is yes, it, there's good news tonight because you're not alone. At least three groups of people in the New Testament are told, act your age, or better put, grow up or be mature. Let me give you these three, three groups of people real fast. The first is addressed by James in what we call the Epistle of James. James there writes to Jewish Christians who are dispersed because of persecution. And James basically writes to them and says, hey guys, grow up. It's time to be mature now in your Christian faith. Live out the principles and the truths that you learn. The second group, which is addressed, are also some Hebrew Christians. They're given to us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Let me read to you what the writer told them in verses 1-3. through This is from the New Living Translation. It says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing your faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and and eternal judgment. And so God willing, we'll move forward to further understanding. Now the situation there that the writer was addressing was that The Jewish Christians, because of persecution, they were wanting to go back under the law. They were wanting to go back to Judaism so they can kind of relieve some of that pressure. And the writer writes to them and says, hey guys, there's no compromise in here. There there is no going back. It's time to press forward. It's time to to grow in maturity. You don't need to go back and learn about these basic principles of Judaism. It's time to be mature now in your walk with Christ and, and live out the things that you have learned. Now the third group tonight is in the book of Galatians, and we're going to talk about them this evening. You see, the Galatians situation was a little bit different than these other two. You see, they were Gentiles. They were non-Jewish Christians. They were probably some Jews also in the church. But these, these false teachers called, you know, that we've been calling Judaizers, they came into the church and then began teaching these Gentile believers. They said, hey guys, unless you're following the law of Moses, unless you go back to Judaism, you guys really can't be saved. You're not really born again. You're not really maturing. You're not really growing your walk with the Lord. Yes, it's good that you have faith in Christ, but in order to be perfected in your faith, you have to do A, B, and C. And they're all from the law. And Paul is going to write to them here, and he's going to say that's not true. But rather, he's going to tell them to abide in grace. And Paul's going to remind them, hey guys, to actually return back to the law is not to act your age. It's not to be grown up. It's not to be mature, but rather it's to be childish and to be foolish. And we'll see that here in verses 1 through 7. And so my prayer is that as we work through these verses tonight, that you and I would be encouraged in our faith to abide in God's grace, to be mature in our walk with Christ, but also that we would have a great understanding of who our Father is in the relationship that we have with Him. So let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Paul says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. And so now last week we left off with this principle that Paul began teaching about the fact that you and I are children of God. Christ came and fulfilled that promise aspect that, that God gave Abraham. And you and I, because of our faith in Christ, are now children of God. We're now sons and daughters of the Lord. But now Paul is going to expand that now and expand our understanding specifically in what was going on there with the Galatians. Now Paul addresses you know, this uh, first two verses here with talking about some of the customs that were going on at that time. You see, whether a person was a Roman, Greek, or Jew, their culture, in their culture, they knew that there was a specific ceremony of coming of age. You know, when, they, when a boy came to a certain age, they were then considered a man, and they were given privileges in their inheritance and things like that. And so Paul is going to make reference to that here in this passage. Now, it's believed by most scholars that Paul is actually referring to the Roman culture based on the fact that he says that the age was determined by the father. We see that there at the end of verse 2. And that was custom in the Roman culture. The father would determine whether, when the son was mature enough to receive his inheritance, to be considered a man, to where you know, the Jews and the Greeks, they had a specific age you know, that they would be considered a man. But in the Roman culture, the father determined when they would be considered a man. Now Paul says, up until that time, they were under stewards and guardians. And so these were slaves who were owned by wealthy Romans. And they were entrusted um, to look over the children. We learned about the tutors last week. They're not teachers, but they were disciplinarians. And they would look over the children. They would discipline them. They would make sure that they kept in line while the parents you know, kind of did their thing. Whatever they did in the Roman culture, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're tax collectors or whatever. Um, but you know, so they, they were in charge of the children. They kept them in line. They, they looked over them, made sure that they were you know, keeping you know, in line until the time that they would receive their inheritance. Now, Paul moves on here to the application of why, why he's saying this in verses 3 through 5. He says, even so, we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the bondage of the elements of the world refers to the religious experiences that the Galatians had before they came to Jesus. This would apply to both Jew and Gentile there in the congregation as as Paul delivered this letter. You see, if a person was a Jew like Paul, they grew up under the law, and they knew the laws, rules, and regulations. They knew that they could never save them, but they knew that it was to keep them. It was to teach them and to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And ultimately, it was to point towards um, Jesus. If a person was a Gentile, they were also in bondage, but they were in bondage of pagan religion. And they were actually kept until at the appointed time when God would send Jesus to there then deliver them from that pagan bondage. And I believe this is what Paul is referring to in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, when he's talking to the um, pagan philosophers there, the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill. And listen to what Paul says. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul talking to these Gentiles here, these guys who are in this pagan religion, says, hey guys, God overlooked these things 
And now God has commanded everywhere through Christ to repent. And, you know, and repentance is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and come to know him. And so both Jew and Gentile were all in a state of bondage until the time appointed by the Father. And that time when the Father determined would be the time when he would send Christ into this world. And that would illustrate when they would come to maturity. Maturity would come when they would put their faith in Christ. Now, concerning that time, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So notice this. Just as the Roman father determined when the Son was to become a man, even so God the Father, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, determined when he would send Jesus to this earth to make it possible for, for them to be delivered from this bondage, from these rules and regulations, and from when they can be mature and receive their blessings and inheritances to walk with, with Christ in this um, mature relationship. Now, it's interesting in light of this verse because if you're like me, often we look at this verse and we think, well, yeah, the best time to send Christ would have been in our age with technology, right? We have space travel, you know? You know, stuff like that. I mean, you know, we have all this stuff. We have, you know, airplanes and planes, trains and automobiles and, and all that stuff. But Paul tells us that we're wrong if we think that way. Because the most perfect time for God to send Christ is when he sent Christ. In the time Christ was born around 7 to 6 B.C. Now, what made this the fullness of time? What made this the perfect time to send Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there's actually a number of reasons why this would have been a perfect time or the fullness of time. Here's, here's a couple reasons. First of all, the Jewish messianic hope was at its highest. You see, the Jews at this time, because of the oppression of Rome, were waiting and longing for their Messiah. Now, in saying that, they weren't looking for what the Bible taught about the Messiah. They were looking for what they wanted in the Messiah, a political ruler who would overthrow the yoke of Rome and, you know, give them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness kind of thing. You know, they, they weren't looking for a Messiah who would come and who would be a lowly servant who they would have to submit their life to, and then he would die for their sins. But they were looking for someone to help them, you know, monetarily right, right, right then and there. Also, there was a time, it was a time in which there was one universal language, which was Greek. And this made it possible for the gospel to be shared throughout the whole world. Greek was the, was the normal um, commercial language, and, and um, because Alexander the Great, because he conquered the world, the Greek culture spread, and the Greek language spread, and so it would make it possible for, their, for them to go these different places and, and speak Greek and share the gospel. There's also a universal translation of the Bible known as the Septuagint. So around 250 um, B.C., um, a group of 70 Jewish scholars got together, because most of the world didn't speak Hebrew, even most Jews didn't speak Hebrew, most spoke Greek. And so they said, guys, we need the scriptures in our own language. And so they translated the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that Greek scripture became the Bible of the early church until the letters and things like that were written by the apostles and prophets. Until that time, that is what the apostles would use, say Paul, when he would go into these Gentile lands and go into the, scripture, uh, go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures. They didn't read Hebrew, but they read Greek, and so he would reason with them from there. So they had a universal scripture at that time. There were roads which connected all the Roman Empire, so missionaries could travel. Rome did that. They connected all the Roman Empire. There was an enforced peace, Pax Romana, right, in which the missionaries could travel safely 
throughout the land. And Paul even invoked his Roman citizenship at times in, in, in order to use the gospel. The Jews were in what's called the dysphoria. Therefore, the synagogue, therefore, there were many synagogues established throughout the Roman Empire. And the apostles would use this at, you know, as a place where they can go in and have a harvest crusade or an apologetic conference. One of the two. You know, and so that's what they do. They would, Paul, that was his custom. He would go into a city, find the synagogue, go in there, reason in the synagogue for a couple weeks. After a while, people would want to kill him, specifically the Jews. The Gentiles would get saved, and so the, a church would be started, and you know, Paul would move on. And if there wasn't a synagogue, he would go down and minister to the folks there, um, such as in Philippi. But, you know, it, God established these things. He made it possible for the gospel to go forth when, when Christ um, would come and establish the church. Now, beyond all this, I think the fullness of time is really prophetic, if you think about it. It's, it's scriptural. For example, God spoke to Daniel through the angel Gabriel and gave him the specific time in which the Messiah would come and reveal himself as the Messiah and die on the cross for the sins of the world. You, you can read this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. There was a specific time that was set, and God told everyone what it is. He said, from the command to restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, given by Artaxerxes, and that was on March 14th, 445 BC. He said that date, from that date in the command would be 483 years until the Messiah would come. Now the Jews, they used a 360-day calendar. They were smarter than us. They used a 360-day calendar. And so if you put 483 years on that calendar, it would come out to be 173,880 days. Now, most scholars are agreed that this date would come out to be April 6, 32 AD. What happened on that date? Well, that was probably the date when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on the donkey, declaring himself as the Messiah. We call it the triumphal entry. When Jesus rode into town, many people hailed him as the Messiah, save now, Hosanna, Hosanna. But the religious leaders in Israel as a whole rejected him as their Messiah. What was Jesus' response to this? Well, listen to what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42. It says, Jesus, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. This was their day. This was their time. This was a time determined by the Father in which you know, they would realize their Messiah in which they would recognize him, submit to him, in which they would be delivered from the bondage of the law and become mature in Christ. From an illustration standpoint, this was their Jewish bar mitzvah, right? This was bar mitzvah time. You know, they, Christ was come, their Messiah was there. All they needed to do was submit to him. But their bar mitzvah was, was postponed. Israel has been set aside, the Bible says in Romans 9 through 11, for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when, when God is done dealing with the church, he's going to rapture the church off the earth. He's going to turn his attention back to Israel. And what is he going to do? Not trying to be disrespectful or anything, but God as a father is going to give Israel a big spanking. That's what he's going to do through the tribulation. He's going to turn Israel's heart back to him through the time of Jacob's trouble. And finally, through this, they will be ready to be mature and receive their Messiah and be delivered from the bondage of the law and turn their faith to Christ. Because that what Paul says in Romans 10 and why they rejected Christ is because they were trying to seek righteousness from the law rather than righteousness 
by faith. And they'll realize during the tribulation they can't do it. Uh, um, through, through the law, they'll accept Christ as the gospel is preached. And so it was a perfect time in which God sent forth Christ to give us our adoption, our, our, mature, our, our, our faith in Jesus Christ. But also, it was a perfect way in which God did it. It was a perfect way. Our adoption is unique. It's, it's one of a kind. And Paul tells us how there at the end of verse 5, he tells us who specifically Jesus is, who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he tells us. And the fact that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't imply that he was created, like the Jehovah's Witness teach, that he was some created being in eternity past. No, the term Son of God actually in the Scriptures implies the fact that Jesus is God, a very God, that he's the second person of the Trinity, that he is equal with the Father, that he's always existed. We see that in Isaiah 9-6, in which the Son is called Mighty God. In John 1-1, we're told that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh. The Word took up a human body and lived among us. In John 8.58, Jesus was t- teaching the Pharisees about the fact that he was the Son of God. And he says, Oh yeah, by the way, guys, I am. He called himself the name of God. And then even in Hebrews 1, the writer is talking about the Son of God and he compares him to angels. And he says, There's none like the Son. Even the angels are commanded to worship him and only God receives worship. And so Jesus, the Son of God, is equal with the Father. He is God himself. Now, he was born of a woman. Now, the phrase refutes liberals and the fact that Jesus was just a normal man. They say, oh yeah, he's just a normal man. Well, no, if Jesus was just a normal man, Paul wouldn't have said that, that he was born of a woman. Obviously, all normal people are born of women. But since he was the Son of God, you know, it's, it's implied the fact that, yeah, God became a man. Not only did he become a man, but he became a man through the virgin birth. He was born of a woman. And the virgin birth is essential to how God would adopt us as his children. You see, through the virgin birth, Jesus, who was God, took up a human nature, and he added it to his divine nature, so Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. Now, not, well, not only was he man, but he was a specific line of man. He was born under the law. And so, Jesus was born of a woman, but Mary was from a specific bloodline that was prophesied in the scriptures, that was set aside in the scriptures. And that bloodline was the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and through David's son, Nathan. Now, it was essential that Mary be from this specific bloodline because if she was not, then Jesus could not rightly be called the Jewish Messiah. You see, even even from the line of David's standpoint, if Jesus was born of Mary through the line of Solomon, then Jesus could not be the Messiah. Because from the line of Solomon, if you follow it down to the book of Jeremiah, there's a guy by the name of Jeconiah. He wasn't a very good guy. And he was a wicked king. And God came to him during the time of Jeremiah, and he says, Jeconiah, because of your wickedness, none of your descendants will ever sit upon the throne of David. And Joseph was actually from the line of Jeconiah. And Jesus' you know, stepfather. But Mary was not. And that's what Luke shows in Luke chapter 3. Mary was from the line of Nathan. And so Jesus could rightly be called the king because he was from this, this bloodline. And so, so God was, was, is working all this out here as he, as he sent Christ into the world. So Christ was a Jew from the bloodline through Nathan, the promised king, but also he was born 
to fulfill the law. He was born to fulfill the promises um, to Israel from God, specifically the covenant of the law. Jesus was born in the law. He kept the law perfectly. And through his death and resurrection, he fulfilled the law. He paid our curse under the law. You see, if you break the law, just one, one law, the Bible says that you're under the curse of all the laws. And all people have broken one of God's laws. I mean, you, can just, you don't have to read too far through Exodus chapter 20 to realize that all of us has broken one of God's laws. And so not only did Christ fulfill the law because he was born of the line of, of, of Israel, but also he died for our curse of the law to free us from it. And so that's the amazing truth of our adoption, the fact that God sent his son into the world, God come as man to, to die for us. Now verse, um, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, that we may receive the adoptions as sons. I was actually in verse 4 the whole time. Now I just realized I'm in verse 5 now. So you're, you're following me, right? Good. All right. So now we're in verse 5. And so Christ came to die for us, to redeem us from the law, and also to adopt us. And so two principles, two very important principles. And so, uh, first of all, um, to, to redeem us from the law, that is, you know, the curse. So therefore, we're not in bondage anymore. So we're not under the law. As we put our faith in Christ, because he died to the law, and we're in Christ, we're no longer under the authority of the law to govern our lives. But second, and most importantly, because we put our faith in Christ, we're adopted as sons. Now, when, when we think of adoption, we need to think of it in a first century Roman context. Often when we think of adoption, we think of today, right? You adopt a child kind of thing. But William McDonald really, I, I think, does a good job in summarizing it. Here's what he says. He says, adoption in Roman culture differed from that in modern life. We think of adoption as taken someone else's child to be one's own. But in the New Testament, adoption means putting believers into the position of mature sons with all the privilege and responsibilities of that position. So that's what adoption is talking about in this context. And so you see where Paul's coming from here as he's writing to, the, to these guys. You see the context. And so here's these Jews coming in, and they're teaching the, the Gentile believers, they're saying, hey guys, unless you convert to Judaism, unless you go to the law... You can't be mature in Christ. You can't be perfected in Christ. You can't even be saved. And Paul writes to them and says, that's foolish. Because the law was like a tutor. A law was like a steward who looked over a child until the father determined to declare you as mature. And that time of becoming mature is when God would send Christ and you would put your faith in him. And because you put your faith in Christ, then God declares you as a mature son and daughter in Christ. Therefore, you are entitled to all of your full privileges in the family of God. You're entitled to all your full inheritance. There's no working your way up kind of thing in the family of God. It's a blessing for us. So through our simple faith in God alone, God looks at us as mature, and he looks at us as, as worthy to receive our full inheritance, all the blessings of heaven. That's contrary to what religion teaches, right? to what legalism teaches. They think, well, man, if you're going to be, you know, blessed by God, well, then, man, you better start doing A, B, C, and D. And if not, well, then God's not going to love you. He's not going to bless you. And the Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible teaches because of God's grace, because of our faith, God makes us his mature son or daughter, and he wants to bestow upon us all of his blessing, all the riches of heaven. God wants to 
pour out upon us. Now, how do we know we have this inheritance, this adoption? Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So the evidence of our adoption isn't in a mere paper, stamp, you know, kind of thing. We don't carry papers around. But it's in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit written on the tablets of our heart. You see, the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit, of being born again, Paul's going to tell us in Galatians 5.24, we'll make it there sometime. He tells us it's a changed life. It's a changed life in Christ. Those who are in Christ have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires. You're no longer governed by your old nature. You're no longer governed by your flesh. That's why the Bible says that those who are Christians cannot practice sin and call themselves Christians. You can't live a habitual lifestyle of sin and get away with it. If you're a child of God, God chastens those whom he loves. He won't let you do it. And so it's a changed life. But second, there comes a desire and a longing to be with God, to love God and to serve him. This, the fact that the Spirit lives in us cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father. Now, the term Abba, as everybody probably knows in this room, it's not new news probably. It could be, but it's a neat truth. It means daddy in Aramaic. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of the relationship that Jesus had with the Father when he was on earth. He cried out, Abba. Before Christ came, when we were still under the bondage of, you know, the Jews under the bondage of the law, they couldn't cry out Abba. They couldn't pray in this way. They couldn't approach God in this way. There was a veil that separated them. But through their faith in Christ, anybody now can approach God as their daddy, as, as their father. And that's a, a sweet, intimate relationship. Verse 7, therefore, here it is, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so Paul sums up his argument here. He says, you know, throw off the foolishness and childishness of the teaching of the Judaizers, but realize who you are in Christ, that through your faith, you're an heir of God through Christ, that you are a son and daughter of God in the sight. What an amazing truth. You know, think about that from the aspect of God the Father. You know, I, you know we all have children, and the Bible says, if we being evil know how to love and give good things to our children, how much more will the Father in heaven Give good things to us to ask. His Holy Spirit. You know, God loves us. And just as my children have access to me anytime, whether I'm studying or, you know, typing away, I don't say pick a number like the DMV. No, you know, kind of thing. I don't make them go out and wash the car even though I wish they would. You know, I say five bucks, I wouldn't have to take it to water drops or whatever it is. But, you know, I don't have to make them work to come to me, but they have open access to me because I'm their father. You know, and, and, and even though they mess up and, and sin, they might be disciplined, but nevertheless, I still love them. And they can come to me, they can repent, and they can, and, you know, and they can walk with me. I always love them. I always want to be with them, right? You know, it's, it's a weird thing if a father doesn't want to be with a child. It is. It's a weird thing. Well, how much more if God, who's the creator of the heavens and the earth, who's perfect, obviously we can understand that God always wants to be with us. It's crazy to think that God, so I'm, I'm going to turn my back on you right now. I'm not going to look at you. No, God loves us. And if we'll come to him, if we'll draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. Amen?